Good morning, Hiker Trash. I hope you are having a wonderful Monday. Um, uh, welcome to the podcast, The Trail to Mount Natanda. I am your friend, Amanda Peters, helping you along this journey, being uh, by your side as you trudge through the wilderness, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's Monday, so sorry. It's been a little bit of a break since I recorded last. Uh, unfortunately, I have just really been dealing with a lot, and that a lot is being lazy. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. Uh, but the weather is great. You are out there walking. You know, it's tough to be lazy when you're supposed to be hiking every day. And uh, that is one reason why I am not hiking at this moment. Um, imagine if you're, if you're doing more than one thing on the trail. The, the, the trail itself is supposed to be a time for healing, a time for self-discovery, uh, looking in and outside of yourself. Uh, but if you're doing more than one thing, if you're uh, working, if you're maintaining a relationship, if you are going to school, you are doing amazing things. Um, and yeah, it might seem like it's pulling away a little bit from your journey. But... At the same time, you're taking the opportunity to find yourself and you're finding yourself while putting that energy forward. And I think that's pretty great. Uh, so what else? Well, today I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your trail names. I think that sometimes when we get trail names that they can be a little wounding of our pride. <laughs> uh, after all, it's usually somebody that we know that gave them to us. And I've noticed a lot of times they could be based on something that we do that we're not necessarily proud of or even aware of. Um, you know, if we're falling down or um, twisting our ankle, they might call us trips. Um, if we are singing too much, they, you know, might <laughs> call us like songbird. Um, there's a lot of different names out there. And what I have noticed is that sometimes there's almost like an ounce of sarcasm when we get a name, but hopefully you get one that you really love and that you can identify with. Um, because that creation of an identity on trail that is separate from the world uh, which we all inhabit is part of the culture of hiking, right? Hiker trash culture, so to speak. And it's freeing almost to assume a different identity while you're out there. Because like I said at the very beginning of this podcast, you know, this is a time for self-discovery. And what better way to discover who you truly are than, you know, taking on a different identity all to itself. So embrace it. 
Uh, today, the story is going to be coming from uh, a book that I got a while ago because one of my um, past schoolmates was one of the authors in it. So the book is called uh, Writers of the Future, Volume 32. And I am not going to read my <laughs> friend's um, story because that might be a little weird. Uh, sorry, Christoph Weber. <laughs> um, I'm not going to be reading Mobius, although I have read it and it's very good. Uh, this time around, I am going to be reading a story called Images Across a Shattered Sea. And it is written by Stuart C. Baker. And it is illustrated by Paul Oteni. Uh, unfortunately, I won't be showing the picture. So, sorry, Paul. Uh, it's a really beautiful picture, but won't be showing it. A little bit about Stuart. Uh, he's an academic librarian, haikuist, and writer of speculative fiction. He's been a reader since he was very young, but didn't start writing until his mid-twenties. Stewart's poetry has appeared in various haiku magazines, and his fiction has appeared in places like Flash Fiction Online, Nature, and Galaxy's Edge, but he has not yet found a reliable way to successfully combine the two forms. Writers of the Future is his third professional short story sale. Stewart was born near London and can speak in convincing English accent if the mood strikes him. Since leaving England at the age of eight, he's lived in South Carolina, Japan, and LA, and currently makes his home with his wife and two children in Oregon, where he spends far too much of his time cleaning up the vomit of cats. Stuart, I think we're on the same page of life with that. Um, when he's not doing that, he is spending time with his family, working, reading, or writing, or he's usually asleep. Again, Stuart, I feel like we're our uh, best friends. So this is his story, Images Across a Shattered Sea. Uh, before I read this, I just want to let you know because it is uh, a science fiction. Um, just be aware that it is not going to be some of the genre that we've been previously reading. All right. The air on the cliffs above the shattered sea was hot as a furnace and twice as dry. Still, Driss couldn't suppress a, shedder, a shiver at the way the shimmering message globe moved through the sky, dozens of meters above the churning black waves. He had seen the globes before, of course, but only after they'd been captured and put on display in the village's cozy museum. It didn't quite seem real the way the little ball bobbed and danced on the breeze, drifting ever so, so slowly toward Fatima, where she stood atop a heap of boulders at the edge of the cliff. Here it comes, she said, waving her net back and forth as she hopped from foot to foot. Her eagerness made the dangers of the place worse. It was as if she didn't care that one misstep could send her tumbling to her death. Driss himself would have been happy never to have seen the coast in person. It had always been a deadly, desolate place, even in the days when the message globes blew across the sea in huge clouds which blotted out the sun. And those days were long since past. They had seen only three globes during their two-week hike, and this was the first that had come anywhere near them. Gotcha! Fatima leaped into the air, 
hooking the bubble-like ball in her nut and pulling it down from the sky. What do you think it is? She clambered down from the rock, looking for all the world like a goat rushing down from an argan tree after eating the last of its fruit. Driss laughed at the absurdity of the image, the tension flowing out of him as she moved away from the cliff edge. A book of law, she continued, ignoring his laughter. Perhaps philosophy? Machine schematics? An encyclopedia? A recipe for pie, Driss countered. A picture of a cat and a joke that makes no sense. Lewd sexual acts. For all of these, as well, had been found in the message globes. Driss's father, who had lived through the mad rush to the coast when they first appeared, still spoke of the derision of the women and men who had bragged that they would recover the priceless lore of the past, only to find themselves the owner of meaningless trivia. Fatima tisked as she sat on the rock. You have no romance, Driss, no soul. Even those are treasures to have traveled so long and so far. Activate it then. Let's see what treasure has come to us across time's yawning chasm. You're as eager as I am, she replied, waving the globe in its net. Just admit it, and I'll open it here, where you can be the first to see. Driss crossed his arms. <laughs> Didn't I come with you this far on this fool's hike? Didn't I leave a steady job with my father to chase down meaningless messages from a dead civilization? Of course I'm as eager as you. Fatima grinned and set her catch on the rock. Up close, the globe looked much sturdier than it had when drifting through the sky. Its surface, which shimmered with the translucence of soap bubbles, when viewed from afar, had taken on the sheen of polished glass, or of mirror pieces sometimes found in old abandoned tunnels to the south. The structure of the thing was not what it seemed either. Far from being smooth, it was made up of hundreds of tiny hexagons, each adjoined to the other in a pattern that shifted subtly as it crossed the message globe's surface. As solid as it was, the globe clearly wanted to be off. It bobbed at the top of Fatima's net, held to the earth grudgingly at best. It's so beautiful, she murmured. Let's see. She flipped the net over and took the globe in her hands, twisting the top portion around so it popped open with a click to reveal a palm-sized gray square. There. A small red light flashed, and then the square in the globe's center came alive, showing not information from the past, but an image of Driss and Fatima in miniature, echoing their expressions and movements in jerky fits and starts. In the dimness of the Penops room, a solitary monitor flickered bathing Jen's face in a sickly stop-motion glare. She sucked in her breath and pushed a buzzer, then passed several minutes by staring at the scene on the monitor, which showed two people who did not yet exist having a discussion about events that had not yet happened. The door to the room opened, and a man in a beige suit entered. "'What do you got, kid?' he asked, clicking the door softly shut behind him. In the sanctity of her own head, Jen bristled. I have a PhD in quantum mechanics, she wanted to say, and one in electronical engineering, and I am not a kid. But these were not the sorts of things one said directly to the man who is responsible for funding one's research. 
even if he was a jumped-up bureaucrat with delusions of being a general from the World War II movie. Besides, he called her kids so many times now, it hardly offended. In revenge, she referred to him as Hog and her thoughts. Hog for his sideburns, Hog for his chauvinism, Hog for the way his eyes narrowed in concentration every time she tried to explain how the panoptic shards worked. Hog leaned up against the next console over. The smell of his stale sweat insufficiently masked by strong cologne wafted towards Jen, making her wrinkle her nose. So who are they? He asked. You pick somebody important, right? The descendants of one of the kings or something. Jen sighed. That's not how it works. The panoptic shard can only broadcast what it happens to find. We can send it to a general place in time, but we can't target it at a specific hypothetical individuals. Hog did the eye thing. Funding, Jen thought. Remember the funding. Even if we don't know who these two are, she continued, their appearance and the way that they act will tell us plenty about the state of society 200 years from now. For example, we can assume from the fact that they were able to activate the shard that they have at least the basic understanding of technology. And we can see that the surface is livable, given that they're not wearing any kind of breathing device or other protection. Uh, that's general, general information. Uh, certainly not the thing a market analyst would want to know. But since we're only interested in generally generalities, it'll serve the purpose well. And because the images we see in the shards derive in part from the actions we take in the short term, we can use them as a sort of gauge to measure the action's effects. So if I map out where we're going to bomb, this will show me how far back in the Stone Age we'll knock them. Jen wins. That's a gross oversimplification. There are so many variables that we can't definitively say a chosen military action alone is responsible for what we can see. Even our observation itself causes variation in these people's hypothetical control state. Uh, what? Think of it like measuring the temperature in a room. If you send someone in with a digital thermometer, both the person and the thermometer are going to add a small amount of heat. And the shards are very sophisticated pieces of equipment, especially given that we've tried to disguise the ones that transmit by putting them in groups of shards which act only as information packets. The mere fact that we've sent them will have impacted the course of future events. Hog grunted. But, uh... Planning a military action will have some observable effect. It should, yes. Then I'll leave the hypotheticals to you, kid, Hogg said with a grim smile. He jabbed one finger at the screen. Give me a live stream of this in the situation room. I got meetings to hold. Before he left, clicking the door shut behind him, leaving Jen alone with the light of the monitor which showed the silent images of two people she feared she had killed long before they ever had a chance to be born. Brightness. Heat. The bone-deep sense that something was wrong. Fatima staggered across the landscape her body insisted was not what she saw. A splitting pain in her head and a hard, silvery ball clutched in one white-knuckled hand. The ball was important, that much she knew. But... The how and why of it, she couldn't quite grasp. What had driven her to leave the safety of their shelter in the caverns? 
Had she lived there all her life and never felt the need to see the festering ruined world, a misstep sent a jolt of sparks through her brain, and her vision exploded with silver-white sparks. Somehow she managed to hang on to consciousness, head spinning, until the pain faded and her vision cleared, and then she stumbled to a seat on the steps of the ruined hut near a hissing stream of stank-burning hair. A yellowing skull rested against some stunted lumber which had fallen into the waters, and she wondered briefly who its owner had been, whether she would meet the same fate. The pressure of the ball against the muscles of her hand was throbbing a counterpoint to the thudding in her head. She glanced down at it, away from the skull and the stream. What was it? She had a vague idea that it was what was wrong somehow, but all it showed was a picture of her. And with her eyes scrunched up tight against the brightness of the surface sky, and with several layers of fabric around her face to stop the poison air from choking her, she wondered if she'd been out too long, if the vapors were making her paranoid. But now, there was something out of place, something she couldn't spot, yet which was as persistent as the throbbing in her temples and palms. Fatima lay back and closed her eyes, hiding the sun's bloated orb behind the crook of one arm. She needed to rest. She needed to remember. Jen shivered as the woman on the screen drifted into a fitful sleep. If the local environment was any indicator of the average global condition, most of the planet was an irradiated waste. And all this in only 200 years, she thought with a glance to the door. What in the hell are they planning? Jen had always known, intellectually speaking, that the military wasn't exactly going to use the panoptic shards to make the world a happy place. She tried to tell herself that even if they used it to kill people, the technology she could develop would serve the greater good in the longer term. That is why she needed the funding. That the ends justified the means. But this was way too much. She pushed her chair back from the console and pressed her fingers against her eyelids until she saw spots, then let out a long, slow breath. She thought of her generation's children, working so hard for what they believed in. They deserved better than this, and the woman and the man she'd seen on the screen did too. Everybody did. She licked her lips, gave the door another nervous glance, and before she could change her mind, severed the shard's connection. It was a warm it was warm in the cafe, but the kind of warm that was tempered enough just by breezes from the nearby ocean to be pleasant instead of stifling. Driss sat at a table with Fatima near one glittering window, breathing in fragrant steam from a cerami steel cup of boiling hot tea. The panoptic shard with its recording device lay nestled in the center of the table. Fatima had attached a jamming device and a nanocarbon tether, which opened a vert screen from the terminal on her wrist. As Driss looked on, she scrolled through the reams and reams of data. It's outstanding, she said, pausing to take a hasty sip of her tea. We've known about the shards for decades now, but this is the first we've retrieved that definitely acts as a transmitter. Driss nodded. Uh, makes you wonder if... They figured out we know how it works. Hmm. He couldn't tell if she meant it in agreement or if she'd found something interesting, but her pupils had the half-dilated look of a woman focused 100% on her vert screen. And he knew better than to interrupt Fatima when she got like that. 
Instead of saying anything more, he went to the counter and ordered a bowl of olives. When he returned, Fatima had moved from reading to writing, her fingers a blur across a projected keyboard. Sending a message? Driss asked. Not quite. Take a look. She flipped the screen his way. Driss popped an olive in his mouth as he skimmed what she had typed, line after line of equation algorithms and other more arcane code. All I see, he had to admit after a few seconds, is a bunch of stuff I don't understand. Fatima rolled her eyes and unflipped the screen. You ought to apply yourself more, she said as she resumed typing. They offer free online classes and all sorts of things at the Kadiyaid, even poetry if you're not interested in the sciences. Driss spat out a seed and fished another olive in, from the bowl. Maybe I'll check it out sometime. But come on, don't taunt me. What's on the screen? Okay, okay. Given where the shards originate, I highly doubt the sender's intentions are good. They probably are just trying to get an edge in one of those unsuccessful 20th, 21st century genocides. There's a signature in their programming which matches what we know about recon and intel work and Driss waved his hand. Spare me the tech speak. I don't understand it anyways. She grinned. Basically, they're trying to use images of us to change our reality by altering the actions they take against us. So I'm giving them an image, just uh, not the kind they're expecting. And after that, well, she made a few final keystrokes and flipped the screen his way. Look. Driss glanced at what she had done and let out a low whistle. Jen flinched as the door slammed open and Hog stormed in. Then she went back to pretending she was hard at work trying to regain the connection. In reality, she used the time since her act of sabotage to copy all of her research onto a secured solid-state drive, and now it nestled in her coat pocket. Get it back now, How Hog growled. I'm trying, sir. So far our system is concerned, we haven't even lost the connection. It insists we are getting images broadcast like before. I don't know what. She trailed off, jaw slackening as the monitors that lined the walls flickered on, each showing images of ruined buildings and poisonous landscapes. The console was alive with data, reporting hundreds of activated shards. All of them? She muttered, tapping away at the keyboard. But we only have one transmitter, unless they somehow figured out how to... Oh, my dear sweet Jesus. Jen's heart skipped at the whispered reverence in Hogg's voice. Then she looked again at the images on the monitor. A satellite image of Florida, barely visible beneath a frothing Atlantic. The Eiffel Tower half collapsed across a ruined city barely recognizable as Paris. The Vatican afire, body strewn from windows and across its many steps. What did you do? Hogg asked. Jen shook her head, but before she could respond, before she could repeat that she had no idea that this shouldn't even be possible, the screens all flickered off and on again. Only this time, the screens all showed a single image, a timer set to 20 minutes and counting down. Hogg looked her way, eyes wide. Turn it off, he said, his voice hoarse. Jen swallowed. The console was still streaming with data. Hands shaking, she entered the deactivation sequence and was not much surprised when it failed to work. I'm locked out, she whispered. I'm sorry. 
Hogg didn't say a word. He just turned away and walked through the door, pale and insubstantial as a ghost. As soon as he was gone, Jen grabbed her coat and ran. It wasn't until she got outside and halfway to the metro station that the adrenaline poured out of her in one big rush that left her shaky and weak. She had to stagger to a bench before she fell. She sat back, eyes closed, breathing in the crispness of the early spring day, listening to people's murmured conversations as they dined on the patio of a nearby bar to the swish of cars and buses driving past. They smelled of rain with a hint of Japanese cherries that dotted the park across the street from where she'd stopped. In her mind, she kept playing back the, that final image, those numbers counting down, irreversibly down. She wait, wanted to scream, to yell, to run through the city like a mad prophet, warning of the coming destruction. But what would be the point? They couldn't stop it now. Not now. A muffled cheer rang out from inside, and Jen opened her eyes. She could just make out some sort of sports game on the TV above the bar. Still shaky, she let out a long, ragged breath. Maybe, she thought, there would still be time to have a drink or two before it happened. She stood to go inside, then froze when she saw, out of the corner of her eye, a telltale glint of a panoptic shard in the sky above the park. A shard, not a weapon. Had she misunderstood the message? It didn't seem likely with the images of the future people had sent. But even just the tiniest hope of it made her heart beat fast and her shakiness vanished. She dashed across the street, dodging traffic, keeping one eye on the tiny mirrored ball as it drifted below the tree line and came to rest in the fronds of the sumac bush. She picked it out and activated it, and her mouth went dry. Pages and pages and pages of text describing fantastical technology scrolled past, complete with diagrams and instructions on how to construct them. One was a machine that, as near as she could figure, would establish a real-time audiovisual link between the future and the present. And there were more, some of which she couldn't even understand. She was standing there, stunned, wondering how they'd targeted her so precisely when there was a gentle bump on the top of her head. She reached up and retrieved a second shard, which she opened with shaking hands to find an identical payload. Heart hammering, she looked out across the city. Hundreds more of bubble-like objects were drifting westward, some landing on empty tables in side street cafes, while others made it into open windows or the upstretched hands of pedestrians. They hadn't targeted her. Of course they hadn't. They didn't even know she existed. Instead, they delivered an instant revolution to everyone around the world. Hog and his ilk wouldn't know what hit them. They'd be so busy dealing with the consequences of this that they'd never get around to wasting resources on some hypothetical future reality. She set one of the shards on the path where it would be easily found and headed off for home laughing for the sheer joy of it. Above her, the sky streamed with glimmering secrets coming down to earth from somewhere far away. The end. So I hope you liked that one. Um, like I said, it's a little less well-known of an author, uh, Stuart uh, Baker. I liked it. Um, I thought it was a little unusual 
but I do like the idea that the individuals from the future were able to create a revolution in the past that, you know, makes you wonder if it's a paradox there that they're creating. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed the story and keep trekking along. I will talk to you all soon. Happy trails.